0: The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. So, uh, Minister Simon Harris, Minister for Further and Higher Education, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat. Now, first of all, uh, CAO applications down slightly, just over 1%. Uh, what do you make of that? I, I, I don't think there's much to make of it, to be quite honest. I think it's a combination of, of of
1: demographic reality and also the fact that there is now a significant uptick in people taking alternative pathways after school as well. So um, no, I, I don't think there's any statistical significance at all, right, all.
0: Because business, nursing, engineering, some of the ways in which uh, you can uh, apprentice yourself and exactly. eventually uh, reach your goal. Uh, what about the suggestion from the listener that we should have a, a four-year postgraduate med school like in the USA? You'd have a primary degree, and then you go on to become a doctor in some shape or form, does that recommend itself to you? So we already do have graduate entry medicine in Ireland. Uh, For example, I know in UCD and indeed many
1: other medical schools, there are graduate entry medicine programmes. And I suppose there's a policy debate to be had that your listener is correct on, and it's, it's for the Department of Health rather than me. But to try and settle that question is to do people, from a health policy point of view, see benefit in people having a primary degree in one area before specialising in medicine. So in Ireland today, you can go into medicine as an undergraduate directly from school, but you can also perhaps do a degree in science or occupational therapy or physiotherapy, as many do, and then go on through graduate entry medicine. So there is no proposal to have a specific standalone no. school or college. And
0: there's a course in Royal College of Surgeons, which allows you to become sort of not the... The full-fledged doctor, but something in between.
1: Yeah, like there's a lot. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of diversity. We've seen a very interesting idea now coming from the University of Galway, where they want to provide medical education with a specific focus on rural communities and rural placements. So there's definitely at the moment a diversity of pathways around medicine. It's an interesting question that the listener raises as to is it prefer is it preferable uh, to have somebody with perhaps an undergraduate degree or life experience in another yep. area before directly going into medicine.
0: Now, uh, the CAO, uh, I don't know whether you've got any stats from the CAO. It's not run by the government, of course. It's run by the CAOs themselves as to how successful uh, the first deadline is. Now, it's only the first deadline... You apply late, you pay more.
1: That's exactly it. And look, I, I mean, I think it's important to say to, to any parent or student listening to this today it, is exactly as you say, there are so many opportunities to continue to change your mind, change your courses, change the ranking of your courses uh, between now and the Leaving Cert and indeed after the Leaving Cert as well. What the 1st of February always signifies is the official deadline to get your application. Yeah, get your number
0: and, and it's you pay
1: the lowest fee. It. And it's wise to do that, um, to, to, to be organised. But it's certainly if you, ha- you happen to miss that deadline, uh, there are still further opportunities And if you've put in a course and you're thinking, oh God, now I'd like to do a different one, there's plenty of time still to change your mind, several times over uh, between now and crunch time.
0: Now, uh, one of the stories we covered earlier this morning was on the front of the the mail today about the possibility that existing Ukrainian people here who uh, will not be affected uh, initially by the new law, which would reduce the payment to... Uh, newly arriving Ukrainians to uh, 3880 if they lived in state-provided accommodation. Uh, Speculation that that regime might eventually apply to all Ukrainians living here in state-provided accommodation.
1: So at the moment, the policy decision is, as you've outlined, we're currently bringing law through the this for new arrivals, for people who come into Ukraine and from Ukraine who come to Ireland now, and we're doing that to try and make the system, I suppose, more sustainable and to reflect the reality that we're moving from an emergency response to a war to you know a couple of years into it now. So that's that's the current policy response. The broader question to which there isn't yet an answer is what is the future of the Temporary Protection Directive, the the instrument that's in place right across the European Union. What happens to that uh, beyond? That now, has to, to be renewed, that doesn't it, be renewed. for the regime to continue? And, and I think. You know that there is absolutely no government decision at all uh, to make any changes to any rights for anybody living here currently. Um, that's true, but 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 we will obviously need to be guided by how Europe moves uh, in the months ahead in relation to this. So government. Keeps I mean, an open the argument would be that
0: if you're on job seekers, for example, as a non-immigrant. Um, you have to kind of fend for yourself you get your job seekers and the rest is up to you uh, if you're a, a, a Ukrainian refugee arriving here you get your job seekers which is now 232 per week plus you're put up yeah, look, <laughs> and uh, you know a lot I, I, of Irish I, I, people are saying I'd love to be put up too I, look, I've I, no home Look and I
1: think, I think the broader and the broader point, from, and from my perspective as Minister for Further Education I mean the The broader point is we want people who come from Ukraine who have rights to work here, who have rights to access education here, to get into the workforce. And I must say many, many have. And I see in my own communities across Wicklow, uh, I see across the country, many Ukrainian people now working. I see in further education over 30,000 people from Ukraine last year accessing further education courses, accessing English language courses. So... It is different, uh, legally different, if you come to Ireland uh, from Ukraine versus other countries in the sense that you do have the rights to access education and work from day one. And I think the overriding policy perspective for the country should be to make sure when people come into this country they get into work. We have serious labour shortages. Every cafe, pub, hotel, restaurant you walk into will tell you how hard it is to get staff. And we now have a resource here. People from Ukraine, many of whom are very qualified, many of whom are are hungry for work. And I think we have a real opportunity there too.
0: And I mean, not to run down the skills of barista in a coffee bar but uh, the kind of language skills you need uh, to do that kind of work are not as sophisticated uh, as being a doctor for example where you have to listen to people's symptoms in various accents and so on if it's uh, you know I want a latte I want an Americano you can actually have a nice social interchange without having to be massively trained. Sure, and we—I uh, th- that's true but
1: I suppose we also need to recognise in the Ukrainian population that has come here there are many people with very significant qualification but perhaps language is a barrier and that's why my department has been funding specific English language courses for people who might want to work in the health service. So you could be a healthcare assistant, a nurse, yeah. a doctor from Ukraine but as you rightly pointed language could be a barrier and now we have very intensive English language provision specifically aimed at the English language yeah. you might need in the health setting. So, I think what we need to do is not just get fixated on a conversation around migration that is purely linked to social welfare. I think we need to actually have a much broader conversation about the people who have come to our country, the people who have made it their home at least temporarily. How can they contribute in a way that they wish to and in a way that is good for Ireland and good for communities and good for businesses? I mean, it
0: is soul-destroying for anybody to be just hanging around all day with nothing to do. So there is a huge appetite, I'm I'm sure, among the immigrant population for work. I, I have to say, I mean, that's
1: absolutely been my
0: experience in my
1: constituency where I've met Many people living in my own hometown of Greystones who've come from Ukraine, you know, certainly hanging around is, is the last thing they want to do. Um, there, there are, there have been logistical challenges, and we have to be truthful about this. The, you you know, when you have. So many people who have come here being women and children, um, you know, uh, somebody f- fleeing a war, arriving here with young children. There's childcare uh, considerations as well. Their so most
0: important job is caregiving to a traumatized for a, child, for a
1: traumatized child who's left a war zone. Maybe the maybe the father is back uh, in, in Ukraine on the, in the, on the front line. So, I mean, there are real issues here, and we have to be very conscious of that too. But, but I actually think there's an opportunity. Ukrainian integration in Ireland has gone really, really well. And now I think we, yes, the social welfare changes we're making are important. Mm. We we'll keep them under review more broadly. We'll watch what's happening. And contribute to what's happening at a European level. But fundamentally, it's about education and work opportunities, I think.
0: Now, uh, some of the the actions taken by government or mooted by government seem to suggest uh, something of uh, a number of U-turns. For example, we heard that most people self-deport. Now we're talking about hiring aircraft to deport people uh, because we know... You know, anecdotally, they simply don't go, or if they do go, perhaps they're going across the border and entering the UK. But we simply don't have that kind of information. So, is that a U-turn? H- have you been deaf uh, to some of the the arguments being made by ordinary, rational, non-racist people? No, we no, we
1: haven't been been, been deaf to it, but. But what we do have to recognise is that the situation has changed very significantly. I mean, we were, as a country, running a migration system that was seeing you know, singular thousands of people coming here through the international protection system on a yearly basis to a very different situation where probably you know, well over 1,700, possibly near 2,000 people will have come to Ireland through international protection in the month of January alone. That, that does necessitate a policy response that requires structures being tightened up. So we're really clear on this. We need an immigration system that's fair and firm. So fair is very fair is quite straightforward. Irish people are outward looking. You and I have just discussed the benefits of migration, why we need people to come to Ireland, where there's lots of jobs. We also, as a country, unlike some others, take our international obligations very seriously. We want to play our role in the humanitarian crisis. So fair is important. And communities right across the country have shown huge compassion. But firm is also important and I think Irish people do want to know that. They do want to know if they are being fair, if they are being compassionate, if they are being helpful, that there are rules and they want to know that the rules apply. And the, the piece about the Chartered Plain is actually quite straightforward because yes, a lot of people do self-deport. So often if you, if you get a letter and you're told you need to leave, people do leave and we do check social welfare systems and other things.
0: But there'll always be some who don't. And but where do they go? I mean, if you arrive here from uh, an African country, for example, and we've no direct flights to Africa... Uh, occasionally charters to South Africa but but nothing other than that. So where do they go if they self-deport? H- what documents do they use to get into either EU countries or into Britain?
1: Yeah, so look, I think when we talk about self-deport- self-deportation, what it references is the fact that there's no evidence that people remain in the country and there's no evidence that people are accessing our public services, interacting with our social welfare systems and the likes in a way that they perhaps would have been up until that point. But I am being really clear on this. That in and of itself is not enough. Um, and as the application process speeds up and this is the change that's happened this week as a result of the proposals that the Minister for Justice got government approval from you're going to see more people who come to Ireland being processed quicker because they're coming from countries that are termed safe. Now that doesn't mean they might never reason individually now, there are many
0: countries on the safe list all, all the predictable ones we would know about uh, in the developed world uh, but a, a couple of countries have been added to the list uh, yes. this week.
1: Yes and it's had a, and Botswana being one and it, it's had a real it has a Real impact because what we've already seen is when countries are added to the safe list, two things happen. Firstly, over time, it looks like the numbers of people coming from those countries do significantly decrease. The second thing, though, is by adding your country to the safe list, what we're basically saying to you is this of course, you have a right to come and seek asylum. However, we're aware that your country doesn't have a war going on, we're aware that there isn't widespread persecution in your country. So, we're going to assess your application a lot quicker. And yes, if there's an individual reason why you need to be here, fair enough, you'll have your right to stay. But if there isn't, you're going to be told no and you're going to be told no quicker. That's where the chartered flights could come into play because if you're making a lot more decisions a lot quicker uh, and you're actually giving out a lot more nose quicker, you are going to see a critical mass of people needing to leave the country build up and logistically there that But where do sense. you bring them?
0: For example, if you have a number of countries in, in Africa which you deem to be safe and uh, but Africa's well, a we huge continent I mean so well, you send them all to Botswana are we doing Rwanda no. on it almost No you know? it is really important who, who'll take who'll take a, a plane load full of Irish deportees of different nationalities
1: So lots of countries across the European Union do this in many ways we're, we're putting a system in place that others have had in place there are re- return agreements in place with many 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 countries at a European level where there is an obligation on a country to take back a citizen of its country if they haven't been successful in their immigration process but just on the Rwanda thing, uh, that just grates on me a little bit because just for the listeners, we need to be extraordinarily clear this is in not in any way, shape or form in any way similar to what's being done in Rwanda. Well, I mean you could be flying them okay? back to Georgia well we're to- yes and we're, or or whatever country uh, yeah. is a country of, of origin, but what we what we're doing here is not saying as other countries might be, that we're walking away from our international responsibilities. What we're actually saying is if you've been through the process, you've had all your rights discharged, you've had your right to appeal, it's all happened quicker and you don't have a right to be there, then you do need to leave the jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And I think people get that. I think people in Ireland want to know there are rules. They want to know people are abiding by the rules and they want to know if anyone is acting the maggot in relation to the rules, they are going to be asked Um, to leave.
0: One of the countries that was discussed, I believe, was Nigeria and uh, that has not been designated a safe country. So people from Nigeria can seek asylum here and will be processed. But Nigeria is a huge country. I mean, you wonder why people who may be having difficulty in their local area in Nigeria would choose to come to Ireland rather than stay in Nigeria and go to a safer jurisdiction within that vast country. So there's a very specific process that the minister has to go through in terms of
1: adding a country to the safe list. But there's also another consideration the minister and any minister would have to make, which is the... Facts that we're building up capacity around faster uh, processing time so it simply makes sense to add a certain number of countries that have met that threshold at one time but we continue to keep that list under review I mean in fairness to Minister McEntee we've seen a number of countries added to the, the so-called safe countries list uh, in recent years we've seen two more this week and the government will continue to monitor this closely and I would expect that we will see more added uh, in due
0: course Have, have we wh- done anything by the way to, to help people with legal migration in other words get a visa to come to work in Ireland if you You've got skill A or skill B. We have, and this is a really, really, really
1: important point because I think we have to make sure that the international protection system isn't in any way conflated or confused in the minds of anyone seeking to come to Ireland to work. Because if you want to come to Ireland to work, there are other pathways to come. They're not pathways that give you an asylum status. They're not pathways that provide you with accommodation, but they are pathways that provide you with a right to work in Ireland. And we have very significantly expanded uh, the number of Uh, Programs that you can, um, the number of jobs, if you like, that you can seek a work permit for, Uh, and I think that's quite important. So my Mm -hmm. message to anybody wishing to come to Ireland who is not fleeing persecution is: there are other ways to come to our country. We are a welcoming country, and we need migrant workers. We we very much recognise the importance of Mm -hmm. that. But there are other legal pathways to come here. Yeah,
0: I suppose that if you apply for one of those visas, you get turned down you can't then throw yourself at the mercy of this the asylum process. And, well you know. look
1: I want anybody to know that if they come to Ireland and if they have a legitimate asylum case they'll be heard fairly and they'll be looked after but if they come to Ireland under the asylum process and they don't meet the criteria for asylum they will be asked to leave and they will be asked to leave more quickly.
0: Uh, this feeds into obviously the people who come across the border. We don't know how many but uh, we, we don't have a border that is policed between Northern Ireland and the Republic um, and uh, we'll leave that particular issue for the moment but I, I was trying to figure out listening to the, the discussions around the very complex document released by the British government uh, in terms of what uh, Jeffrey Donaldson has achieved. Uh, and it's up to him to tell his own people what he thinks he's achieved. But what difference does it make to us in terms of trading arrangements, in terms of people moving back and forth, in terms of our exports?
1: So I, I, I'm, you'll understand why I'm going to be a little cautious on I'm giving too much commentary in relation to this because I am conscious that there's processes being undertaken um in Northern Ireland and the political parties in Northern Ireland always with a view to, to asking to getting the institutions back up and running pot- potentially as soon as tomorrow and that is the big win for everybody on this island in terms of peace prosperity and tackling some of the major issues facing Northern Ireland you, you know we have challenges in this jurisdiction but if you look at any of the stats around homelessness and health and the likes in Northern Ireland real 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 uh, urgent issues and people have a right that the people they elected at a ballot box get back to work uh, and I'm really really hoping that we see that tomorrow The the paper was only published, the command paper by the British government about 48 hours ago. The Irish government is currently, you know, taking its legal advice, is going through it very thoroughly. Uh, The Taoiseach has already said we don't see any red flags in it. Like our our traders
0: will not have to do anything dramatically different? I mean, what
1: that basically means is that the the, the Windsor framework is the agreement between the european Union and and that and is the referenced in the document. that is referenced in the government. and that legal that legal document has not changed. what 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 has happened, And again, and I'm not going to expand too much on this, but what has happened is that the British government um has engaged. Uh, with uh, the DUP in terms of clarifications on how it is going to be implemented, how it is going to be operationalised. Obviously, the European Commission and the European Union will have questions about that, will want to monitor that and they've every right to. But the Taoiseach, from our perspective, has said that there are no red flags uh, in the in agree- in the mm. in the document. That I mean,
0: the, there are pains to point out that if it comes to, say, people smuggling or drug smuggling or whatever, they can still do checks on the Irish Sea between the island of Britain yeah. and the island of Ireland. They can still do that If they deem it's an appropriate uh, action that needs to be taken.
1: Yeah, 100%. But let's also be clear, I mean, Brexit caused absolute chaos. Uh, for this island and for these two islands in terms of how they interact uh, with each other. And every day since Brexit, there has been a huge amount of work in terms of how, how do we tease our way through all of this. Uh, you know, n- nobody in the Irish government and I don't think anybody in Ireland was advocating for a Brexit. Brexit happened. Uh, people of Northern Ireland in a majority didn't vote for Brexit. We've had to work our way through this. But the big, big prize here after years of a political vacuum in Northern Ireland is that within the next 24 hours, it's possible that we see mm. an Assembly reconvened, an Executive uh, back in office, a First Minister elected, Ministers at their desk, and people for us to interact with here. I mean, mm. you know, as a Minister, not having not having an interlocutor in Northern Ireland on some of the key all-island issues sure. has been a real barrier over the last number yeah.
0: of years. Uh, well, what did you make of Mary Lou MacDonald's claim that uh, United Ireland is within touching distance?
1: I think people need to be, ve- I think people need to be very careful with their language and with hyperbole. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement very clearly sets out the constitutional reality in relation to Northern Ireland and how that constitutional reality can be changed should a majority uh, wishing to change it emerge um, in due course. The reality of the situation is here. Now is not a time for any sort of provocative political language. I think now is a time for respect, mutual respect. There are different traditions on this island. There are different traditions in Northern Ireland. And I think the most pressing thing most people in Northern Ireland regardless of tradition we to see today, uh, is their politicians back at work, not squabbling, not playing politics and actually doing Uh, their bloody uh, jobs.
0: Was she being a bit reckless, do you think, given that Michelle O'Neill, her colleague, was within touching distance of becoming First Minister?
1: Well, look, I'm I'm going to on a day like today, I'm going to refrain from I'm going to refrain from from that. But what I, what I am going to say is, on a personal level, I, I want to wish Michelle O'Neill um, all the very best. Um, I know Michelle; uh, we were both health ministers on this island at the same time. She was the Northern Ireland health minister when I was the Irish health minister. Uh, I know her to be uh, I know her to be a committed politician. Uh, it's obviously a, a major day for herself, her family and, and her supporters and you know the significance of a nationalist first minister being elected to office um, you know it not lost on anybody so I do want to wish her on a personal level all the very best.
0: Now back to your own brief, uh, can you ask Minister Harris as to why when he's pushing apprenticeships that there's a lag in accompanying legislation for qualifications, for example scaffolding apprenticeship. It took five years of pushing and fighting uh, for one as an industry for it eventually to start it did so just over two years ago so seven years on from the start of pushing for One, two years for the first groups of apprentices to finish their courses, and at the end of it, they were told that legislation is not yet in place. So the only qualification they have after two years is the old CSCS system, which is not recognised anywhere outside of Ireland. Very frustrating.
1: Yeah, And that's quite a very specific uh, a specific query, but the, the, the listener is correct that there is a construction licensing bill currently going through the door. I think it's at report stage. We hope to get that law uh, passed by the summer. And so I can assure them that that is getting a, a huge area of attention and focus.
0: Uh, You've been pushing apprenticeships. Joe says, could you ask the minister about apprenticeships and the success of people being employed into apprenticeships? My son left school last summer. He's applied for 27 apprenticeships, including state companies like Irish Rail. He's only managed to secure one, and that was through a friend of mine. Most of the companies did not even reply. Because you have to be mentored into your apprenticeship by a company. You
1: do. And look, obviously the listener has a a particular experience and perspective. It it is a little out of culture with what I usually hear, but I'd be happy to hear from them uh, by email in more detail because we did see that we did see a record number of new apprentices registered last year. The highest number of apprentices ever registered in Ireland, almost 9,000. I think the point they make or imply, though, is an interesting one. I don't want to have an apprenticeship system that is entirely reliant um, on private industry. I do want to provide more opportunities and pathways through the public sector because I think I think that's really practical, quite frankly, but I also think it just makes, uh, it makes a lot of sense. So we have now set, for the first time, public sector apprenticeship targets where we want the public sector to take on at least 750 new apprentices uh, per year, and that will definitely provide more opportunities. But but generally, I find more people than ever before are now getting accepted
0: onto mm. apprenticeships. And no, but in mean, a scaffolder, where is he going to get a job in the public service?
1: No, sorry, but I mean I'm I'm more talking about the fact that well, a scaffolder won't be short of job opportunities in construction, (laughs) certainly not. But I'm more talking about the opportunities, for example, that are that every county council in Ireland has opportunities to take on apprentices in 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 ICT, account technicians, Mm -hmm. uh, and in some of the crafts and trades. Um,
0: Dental technicians, there are none. No apprenticeship schemes. Uh, That's from Philip.
1: So there's currently 73 apprenticeship programmes. There's a hundred due to be in place by the end of the year. Quite an incredible number. In relation to any new apprenticeships, we are open for business. But to form an apprenticeship, I can't create one. What it requires is industry coming together with an education partner and submitting a a proposal and then we can get moving. So my message to anybody, if dental technician is is an area of interest, to anybody who sees a skills gap or or sees an opportunity to develop a programme, we're very much open for business.
0: Um, Here's one which I think is uh, relevant and probably repeat it again and again. My daughter wants to do dentistry, aiming for very high points, but 625 might not be attainable. She's looking to go to Spain or Poland or Cyprus. So many Irish kids having to do this. The non-EU students are taking up all the places here and they don't have to do HPAT. I would love if she could stay in Ireland. They presumably pay big fat out-of-state fees.
1: Yeah, that's right. But I think with dentistry, I think the bigger issue is actually capacity overall. So there are proposals two very active proposals which I'm aware of to create a new dental school um, in Ireland and in my conversations with the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform this is one of the priority areas I'm hoping to receive Mm -hmm. funding for. We do need at least one new uh, dental school and there are exciting proposals in from two universities It it just
0: baffles me that 625 to look down people's gobs for your professional life. Now, skills but a lot of them are manual skills they're dexterous skills Um, you know you do your biology and you do your medicine you do all of those things But the actual dentistry skills are quite manual, and there'll be some people who'll be great at passing exams and useless at changing a plug Well you see I think we I think we make a
1: mistake in this country sometimes part of presuming that the number of points in any way shape or form is linked uh, to the academic uh, requirement for a course You the still have to get through is, it don't you? You do The number of points is simply supply and demand So if we create a new dental school for example or a new medical school as night follows day points do fall um, So if I take medicine as an example before I became minister we were creating about three or four new medical places a year we've created about 200 on average um, we're, we'll have 200x Now And as a result of that, we saw medicine points for the first time in a long time, actually fall last year. So dentistry is the same. Veterinary is the same. So what we're doing in my department is mapping out the areas where we know we need more people. So no point if we don't, where we know we need more people. And how do we actually try and create the capacity um, to create those places? And that will help with the points system. I should also say more broadly we are now creating a way of doing degrees outside the CAO system Mm. because I think this idea of points, 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 how many points do you get your leaving search being a life-defining moment uh, is a conversation that's too narrow, is too snobby and elitist at times and means we're actually missing out on some good people. So if there are people listening to this programme today who have a son or daughter or indeed themselves are are doing the leaving search, if you go to nto.ie, there are now 40 degrees available from September, doubling outside the CAO system. So you can become a nurse, you can get a degree in business, in engineering, construction, studies, music, sound production, so many other areas where you'll be assessed. Of course there's minimum requirements but you won't be assessing your points. You'll be assessed on the minimum requirements plus an interview or a portfolio yeah. and that to me seems like a fairer yeah.
0: way. I mean the idea of having a dentist who's Brilliant academically, but is hamfisted. <laughs>
1: you know. No, I should say you know. to reassure the listeners of this program. I should say dentistry obviously is a regulated yeah. profession, so uh, there's certainly very, uh, uh, very high standards that people uh, have. Uh, have a, need a to final comment,
0: alas, uh, from a listener. The new dental school will be built alongside the metro, or indeed the children's hospital. I know, uh,
1: uh, the any, children's hospital is nearly nearly built, and the new dental school is not uh, proposed. a near story the,
0: anywhere near the metro. A story for another day. <laughs> Minister Simon Harris, Minister for Further and Higher Education. Thank you very much.